This is the Author Archive podcast. I'm David Freeman. This episode was recorded in 2000, and I'm talking to the biographer and writer Robin Egger. He had just published a biography of Tom Jones. Now, I had to confess that I really didn't like Tom Jones until about 2010, when his Praise and Blame album came out, which I thought was terrific. But I said, Robin, the early stuff I didn't really like very much. Me neither. I mean, you know, he just, he was, during the 60s, he was just an ever-present sort of annoyance, I suppose. His song, because of the way radio was in those days, his songs were on all See, so by the time they got to number one or number two, you knew every single word and you were sick to death of it. But then 20 years later, you suddenly realize, actually, this guy can sing and the song isn't that bad. It's got a melody and all, all of that. And maybe we're getting older or maybe we're getting a little bit less discriminatory, I suppose. <laughs> but your book starts with Tom Jones, Tommy Woodward, singing along with, I suppose, the arch-hero of the time, the king hero, Robbie Williams. Well, that was, that was a very intriguing moment for me. I mean, I'd interviewed Tom a couple of times before for magazine articles, but I'd never... I'd, I'd thought of an idea of a book. We'd even... My agent and I had even spoken to him about the idea of doing an authorised biography, which he never wanted to do, and I don't think he ever will, because of, there are certain elements of his life in the past that he does not want to upset the wife with and he is not going to divorce his wife and he does not want to embarrass her any more than he already has. <laughs> uh, but I, I was at the Brit Awards and sort of, I had to admit, getting you know, well hammered as one does there. And suddenly on comes Robbie Williams, who at the time was not the big star he is now. The, the duet with Tom at the Brit Awards made Robbie as much as it made Tom. And he came on and he was wearing a black leather catsuit. He looked a bit like sort of on a blackman in, um, in Goldfinger. And he was writhing around like, you know, the, uh, like nobody's business. And on came Tom and he just opened his mouth and he just blew the guy off stage. But Robbie kept, you know, Robbie was like a sort of, you know, I suppose a sort of, you know, pet dog that doesn't know, didn't, doesn't know when it's not one. He kept coming back for more and he got better and better. And it's the best performance I've ever seen him give. And Tom, and they, they just meshed and the whole audience went berserk. And I thought, this guy has got something. But not only that, he's got the ability to bring out the best in people who are 20, 30, 40 years younger than him, which is also something, as you say, we live in a youth culture, and you know, if you're over, if you're over 30, you're, you know, you're, you're dead and buried. But Tom doesn't worry. All he wants to do is sing. That's all he's ever wanted to do. And he'll sing with anybody who'll give him the chance. And the people who are giving him the chance now are 20. And you also say that uh, he always gives 100%, or even, I think the, what, the, the figure you give in the book is 110%, because you say he doesn't know any other way. Oh, no, absolutely not. He, he has, ever since the first time he went on stage without a guitar, which was like 1962, he went on stage and started bellowing out great balls of fire, because he's a great Jerry Lee Lewis fan, and the, the lower part of his body kept moving in a most suggestive way, and it was just instinctive, and that is the way it's always been. He can't help but grind his hips and sing full volume. Yeah, because there's um, another recent thing where he's performing with Jules Holland, and he points out to Jules Holland that he's always played Great Balls of Fire slightly wrong. Yeah, yeah he, he was doing, a, I think it was one of Jules's Hogmanay specials, and Jules was playing the piano, and Tom 
is for a man who is as major a star as him, there are some very, very good parts of his character. One is that he never puts people down in public. So it was just like he looked a bit sort of wasn't happy. So he just leant over to Jules and said, Jules, why don't you just do this? And Jules just did it. And about halfway through the song, you could suddenly see that his eye, this is the way it should be played. I've been playing it wrong. And afterwards, you know, in the bar afterwards, which is always Tom at his best, there they are having a few beers or glasses of champagne. And Jules said, well, Tom, how, how did you know? And, you know, you don't read music. Tom said, well, Jerry Lee told me. And that's, that, that's the way he works. I mean, he does, he loves music. And for the first time in his career, he's actually being that dreaded expression for musicians, being taken seriously as a musician. Your book starts with this sickly lad, two years in a bedroom in Wales? Yeah. With, what was it, TB? TB, yes. I mean, in, uh, this was 1951, 52. And in, in those days, I mean, TB was a killer. Um, it seems to be coming back that way, which is a bit mm. scary. But antibiotics weren't around, for certainly for a miner's son. And the only cure was basically bed rest for two years and preferably in a sort of hospital. But fortunately, because Tom's house was on the top of a... I mean, in the south of Wales, they seem to add houses. If there's a flat bit, they add a house. So you've got three streets along this very narrow valley. And... Fortunately, he was at the top of this. They, they converted the attic room. He stayed in the attic room, so he got sort of, you know, fresh air or whatever, and stayed inside for two years. Went into the red bedroom, a boy, and came out a man. A bit of a randy man. Oh, God, yes. I mean, he's... <laughs> he is, I suppose, if, if, if you boil Tom Jones down to two things, it's... They both begin with S. The first is singing, and the second is sex. Singing is more important. Are you but, sure? Yeah. <laughs> or is yeah, that just is yeah. that because he's sixty? <laughs> no, I think I think singing has always been more important because with singing brings him the sex. How old was he when he got married? Sixteen. And um, he was a son. He was a son. He had a son who is I mean who was born just after his seventeenth birthday. This is extraordinary, isn't it? And he's still married to the same woman. He's still married to the same woman, though. There's I think they have a an arrangement in the sense that she pretends not to know what's going on and he doesn't rub her nose in it. But there's a, there's a great scene in the book. I mean, I sat about this book and I thought, oh, Tom Jones, you know, I thought this was going to be a hagiography. And it's not. It's very, it's very entertaining. Where well, he's in bed with one of the Supremes, Mary Wilson, is it? Yeah. Oh, yes. That, that was, he, and, and the phone rings and it's Linda on the phone. Yeah, and she, Lin, Linda at the time was, you know, she liked to drink a bit too and she was very... And there was a period, I think, between about 1967 to 71 where I think their marriage was quite ropey because, you know, Tom was late 20s, huge star, women throwing themselves at him. And I think he wasn't quite content and Linda was... Un, Linda never managed to make the jump to being a star's wife. She couldn't... She didn't like to wear the posh frocks and hang out with rich people. She just wasn't comfortable with that. And Tom was having a major affair with Mary Wilson, who was uh, one of the Supremes. And they're lying in bed in Bournemouth. They've got a house, rented a house in Canford Cliffs, and the phone rings, and Mary sort of wakes up. Oh, pass the phone over to Tom. Doesn't say anything, fortunately. And the, it's Linda thing. Get that bitch out of there! Tom goes, ah, ah, ah. And then she's, I'm down the, I'm down the phone. I'm down, the, sorry, I'm down the street in a phone book. In the phone box, yeah. In the phone box. Yeah, I'm down the street in a phone box, and there, and he's out of there like a flash. He, he sprints downstairs to the basement where his driver, Chris Ellis, is staying. He says, Chris, we've got we to get out of here. We've got to get out of here. Linda says she's in the phone box at the end of the street. Get Mary out of here. So Mary, who 
being a full-blown superstar, never travels with less than six bags, has to pack all her six bags in 30 <laughs> minutes. In, 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 within half an hour, they're in the back of the Rolls-Royce. Uh, Lind- uh, sorry, Tom is sort of frantically tidying up, trying to pretend that, uh, that Mary's never been there. Mary's in the back of the Rolls with her six bags, with a tape recorder playing Green Green Grass of Home, crying all the way back to London, which is like two and a half hours. And Chris said he could never listen to Green Green Grass again after that because he was sick to death of it after two and a half hours with broken sobs. There's great stories in here. I mean, how he actually gets going. The very first time his Welsh band come to London and kind of look, what, what, sort of find the place intimidating? Oh, they were... I mean, this is something else that people don't really understand about Thomas. He comes from an era... He is the last of... The last of a dying breed, I describe. He's like Elvis. He's like Sinatra. He's from a very poor background. At a time in the in twentieth century culture, where South Valley's culture was completely different from London culture, people didn't come up to London. It was ten hours. In yeah. a, you know, it took ten hours, and, and you didn't know anybody. I mean, they didn't know anybody in Wales. And Tom himself, out of Wales, they didn't really know anyone in Cardiff. And Tom himself said, I, I, couldn't, I couldn't come to London. What was I supposed to do, walk around the street singing? Now, a band, you know, a, a band who make a halfway decent noise and they live in the Brecon Beacons, there'll be, there'll be a queue of A&R men uh, around the mm. block waiting to get to them. They won't have to go anywhere. But in those times, I mean, Tom had at least, he'd learnt his trade, but they were, they were scared to death in London. They had no idea. And there's a great scene, Joe Meek, the first independent record producer who had at the time hits John Layton, Johnny Remember Me, Tornadoes, Telstar, he's produced these uh, and lives um, a somewhat um, eccentric homosexual life in North London and Tom gets in there. Yeah, Joe, Joe Meek, Tom had a couple of managers who were colloquially known as Myron and Byron and were not terribly popular. Um, and, but they somehow were Tom's manager, Tom and the, his band. Well, it was Tommy Scott and the Senators in those days. Here they were the managers, and they convinced Joe to record Tom. And Joe used to record. He 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 lived. He had his studios and his house above a shop in the Holloway Road. And so they all turn up there. And Joe is very very gay, and and Welsh, isn't he? No, he was from um, Gloucester. Oh, was it? Oh, right. Yeah, but okay. sort of West Country. But he, he, and the first thing they see is, you know, the the window from the studio get looks through onto onto uh, Joe's bedroom, and in Joe's bed is Heinz from Heinz and the Tornadoes, who just had a big star, and there he is, sort of you know, with his dye blonde hair, lying, lounging around naked in bed, and these, and you know, and, and the boys know it's it's Joe's room, and they are a little bit freaked by this, to put it mildly, because, you know, this does, does not happen in Wales. Or if it does, you keep very quiet about it. It probably happens down in, you know, it may happen in parts of Cardiff. But, um, and, and then, you know, they, 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 they do a recording session, and Joe is, Joe is basically completely bonkers. At the end of one, uh, during one recording session, he just comes into the room, because he feels they're not doing anything, with a pistol, which he aims at Tom, bang! It's a starting pistol, but Tom is, of course, completely freaked. So he lets rip sort of quite a good vocal after that. And then finally they're loading the kit up and Joe says to Tom, um, you know, that's all right. And he, he starts sort of coming on to Tom. And he says, oh, that's a nice packet you've got in there. He's just sort of eyeing up Tom's scratch. And basically goes, to, grabs it, grabs, grabs Tom by the balls. And Tom goes completely berserk. And, and the band, the dancers, and all they hear is the sound of equipment being thrown down the stairs. And Tom's screaming, that bastard grabbed my dick. 
<laughs> Has he got more sophisticated with the passage of time? Yes, there is a sort of... His first manager, Gordon Mills, laid a very good layer of sophistication on top of him in that, you know, he drinks the finest wines, he gave out beer, sort of fish and chips, he... He like he tends to buy wine by the name, by the designer label, rather than the actually by the sort of you know because he really likes it. But then, you know, you can't really go wrong with Chateau Petrus, can you? <laughs> That's Robin Egger talking to me in the summer of two thousand when his biography of Tom Jones was first published. So that really is an archive interview. This is the author archive. I'm David Freeman.